You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good morning, everybody. Could I well welcome you all and thank all of you for being here. Uh, it's a very special day today. Uh, nor- normally in ODI, we host events in our institution. But when you announce that Hans Rosling is going to give a lecture on data, it's a bit, little bit like saying the Pink Floyd are going to be playing at your local <laughs> next week or Jay-Z or somebody of that sort of... <laughs> Stature. So we're, in, we're incredibly lucky to have Hans with us. Uh, be, before just making a couple of introductory remarks, there's one logistics uh, point or, or in point of information I need to make, which is that uh, if there's an announcement of an emergency, uh, it's a real emergency, and Barbican staff will take us through the processes for exiting the, 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 the building. Um, I, I was trying to find uh, uh, words for describing Hans's contribution and the role he plays in development. And actually, that's a really tough thing to do. You can read his bio. But there are actually uh, two words that really stand out for me that I think do summarise what Hans does. And those words are pietotum locomotor. And does anyone recognise the phrase? No, but you, you all ought to be reading your kids Harry Potter more at night because Pietotum Locomotor is the spell used in Harry Potter to bring statues to life by Professor McGonagall, for those of you who are aficionados. <laughs> and I think what Hans does is that he has this extraordinary ability to bring numbers to life and data to life and to let data tell stories and to transform data into a vehicle for achieving change and making the world a better place. So it's, it's, uh, Claire is going to introduce Hans in a little bit more detail in, in a moment. But uh, I, I first want to pass over to Claire Melamed, who leads our work on the Sustainable Development Goals. And Claire and her team have done an extraordinary job over the past few years in informing the Sustainable Development Goals. Claire is actually an advisor to the UN Secretary General on data work. And the thing about the Sustainable Development Goals, of course, is that governments like nothing more than to sign up to ambitious targets that nobody monitors. And the reason the data work in ODI is so important and that we're so delighted to have hands here is that this is really about how do we make data a vehicle for achieving change. And there's there's nobody better in ODI than Claire Melamed to uh, take us through that. So Claire, over to you. Thank you, Kevin, and thank you, Hans. Thank you, everybody, for coming. I promise I won't detain you long because I realise you are all here to listen to Hans and not to me. But before we hear from, from Hans, seeing some of the fantastic pictures that he creates with data, and as Kevin said, some of the wonderful stories that he tells and the ways that he demonstrates so beautifully how you can, numbers, just like words, can be used to tell stories and paint pictures of the world around us. I just wanted to take a moment to talk about the data itself. Now, ODI is nearly, nearly as passionate about data as as Hans himself. For the 50 years of of our existence, we have been, oh, 
<laughs> Something's going wrong there. <laughs> Can we have the first slide, please? Um, ODI is nearly as passionate about data. For the, for the 50 years of our existence, we've been using data. Sometimes we go out in the field and collect data. We analyse data. But underlying all this is a, a very strong and passionate belief that numbers can be a tool for changing the world. I think, you know, we absolutely believe that numbers can and have done this. But I think also, increasingly over the last few years, we've all become aware of how much we don't know and particularly how much we don't know about the poorest and the most powerless. To take one example, I expect well known to many of you here, about one third of children in the world don't have their birds registered. Not only does that mean that they lack a legal identity and all the benefits that that can confer, but it also means that a government who wanted to provide education services or health to those children wouldn't know that they existed in the first place, wouldn't know where they live, what their problems are, and where to put resources to actually give them the health and education that is their human right. Also, some of the most important the issues that most affect the powerless are often the ones that are most absent from the statistical record. For example, only about half of all countries in the world collect data systematically on domestic violence. And this means that, obviously, it's very difficult to help to solve a problem if you don't know how big it is, you don't know where it is, and you don't know who is affected. So the lack of data means that the governments, the NGOs, many of you in the room who are trying to make a world a better place and in the current language of the Sustainable Development Goals to leave no one behind, effectively are doing this with, with one hand tied behind our backs. If we just take one of the numbers that we use every day. This is, uh, if you look on an official website, it will tell you that about uh, that um, 179,000 women in Africa died in childbirth in 2013. Now, by any standards, this is a, a horrifically large number, but it's a number which is not quite as real as it seems. It's based on actual recorded data from only about 16% of births. Um, Given that very weak, poor start, there has been a huge and valiant effort by many well-qualified and well-intentioned people to do the best we can on estimating what we think the maternal mortality figures are. Obviously, it's a crucially important issue that we want to know about. And as I say, no one's trying to trick anybody here. These are very well-intentioned, well-informed estimates, guesswork, essentially. And we see this number, but in fact, and let's hope it is, it could be as low as 133,000 women that are dying in Africa every year, still a large number, not quite so horrendous, or horrifyingly, it could be higher, it could be 256,000. The margins, the confidence intervals as we call them around that data are so large that really, while we can be pretty certain about the trends, and Hans's hands will show us, the actual numbers are a lot less sure than we think they are. Now, this is also, and this is the problem really for trying to use this data to solve this problem, these are based on national averages. 
that's fine if you're trying to monitor what's happening year on year across the world, and that's a very important thing that numbers can tell us. If you're a government who wants to actually know where to put its money or its midwives to start to solve this problem, one national average, while tells you something, doesn't actually give you the information you need. You need to know where these women live, which parts of your country women are dying in the greatest numbers, so you can understand where to put your resources to start solving the problem. In many cases, that's information that simply isn't there. But, having painted this rather bleak picture, let me tell you that things are, in fact, changing. In um, Liberia is a country that um, Hans and I expect many of you know well, not least because the uh, recent tragedy of the Ebola outbreak. A few years ago, as part of the post-war reconstruction of the infrastructure, the government of Liberia, together with the private sector, international institutions, got together to try to create a map of the country's water points. And they did this by, not just by mapping in the conventional sense, also by taking photographs, by talking to local communities about which of the water pumps were working, how often they were working, whether they were being provided with the services they needed. They then uploaded this all and created a fantastic publicly available map of all of the water points in Liberia where you can look in great detail at where they are, what's working, what's not working, what kind of facilities are available where. And of course this help didn't just help the government when they were trying to re rebuild the country's infrastructure, it was also helpful when the Ebola outbreak occurred, it allowed the government to to look at where there was water to help decide where to site the health points. Because, of course, one of the absolutely critical things you need if you're setting up a new health point is a reliable source of clean water. So this is just kind of one example of what, in a fantastically brilliant piece of political marketing, we are calling the data revolution. Um, the, the data revolution is a phrase which over the last couple of years has, I think, somewhat to the surprise of many of us, many of you who've been plugging away at the data coalface for, for many years, is, uh, some, has really caught the political imagination. And we have a kind of political focus on data in governments, among international institutions, the like of which certainly I've never seen before. Part of this, as, as Kevin said, is to do with the sustainable development goals and the demands that everyone is suddenly, there's a meeting in Bangkok as we speak, trying to work out how, what are the indicators that we're going to use to measure these goals. And the, the current, I understand that the, the, current, um, the current list of potential indicators, data that might be used to measure these goals, runs to some 800 pages. So this is, this is not going to be a small job. And I think this is really concentrating minds on why we need better data, not really importantly just to monitor these goals, of course, that's one thing, but also to achieve them. Governments are going to need better data to actually carry out the policies, do the things, use the resources to achieve these very ambitious goals. So it's no accident that the day after the Sustainable Development Goals were agreed in New York last month, was we saw the launch of a new global partnership on sustainable development data. And this has brought together governments, companies, NG um, companies, NGOs, academics, a whole range of people who are committed together to solving some of these critical problems, helping to use data to achieve the goals, to monitor the goals, and also to give citizens, NGOs, 
different kinds of organisations the information so that they can know whether the governments are keeping these incredibly ambitious promises that they've just made. And we have a really exciting opportunity here. Um, and this opportunity, of course, not least, is to do with the hard work of, of many of you who've been working on data, drawing attention to the problems with data, in, trying to use data in all kinds of ways for many years. Now, of course, every, every cause these days has its celebrities. Uh, Global Poverty has Bono, Humanitarian Relief has uh, Angelina Jolie, but uh, data has its very own rock star. <laughs> and we are incredibly excited to welcome Hans today to ODI and to the Barbican. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm here in exchange for the appreciation of your study, Financing the Future. That really helped us out a lot this summer when we made the documentary for BBC about how to end poverty in 15 years. It was a brilliant analysis. That little, little trick of moving from mean to median to understand the aid at different levels. That was real and intellectual contribution. So I thank you very much for that. That helped us up a lot. I'm here from Gapminder, and I'm here together with our new manager, Osa Karlsson, who we have recruited this very week, uh, because we are trying to expand to be part of this uh, data revolution in a more active way. But actually, you said one thing, I bring data to life. No, you can't do that. Data is so boring, it will never work. <laughs> you can see lives through data. The numbers are not interesting, it's the lives that are interesting behind them. It's like the gearbox in the car, you know. You have to go through the data, take it away and see the people behind it. Now you need the data to see all the people, because if you don't have the data, you miss some people. So the data helps you to see all the people. And it's, it's very interesting that, that at the same time we underuse data, we run the risk of relying too much on data at the same time. My experience from three, uh, three months with epidemiological surveillance of Ebola in Liberia, working as a person in the Ministry of Health, being on the Liberian side negotiating with international organizations, was that we didn't need so much data on Ebola. We needed to have the understanding of the lives behind the data. To manage to stop Ebola was not about counting people. It was about visiting those people, sitting down with them, gaining their confidence and having them to tell us about their lives. <coughs> and very much the, the success in, in Liberia was Mosaka Fala, who had a, a public health training you know, with a PhD degree that was very much anthropology oriented. He was good at data, but the best thing was that he could go behind me. Let me tell you one story, how he did. We had these problems that when we listed the contacts to Ebola traces, some went missing. The contact tracer went to see them every day, and suddenly an eight-year-old boy was missing. And the mother said, I don't know where he is. The contact tracer tried to convince her, he didn't manage. He went to the supervisor, the supervisor went to talk to the woman and said, I just don't know which was impossible. A mother couldn't say that about her eight-year-old, who had been exposed to Ebola from a neighbor. 
and we needed to see that boy every day. And we knew that if someone was missing out of 100 in the list, the probability they were missing because they were developing Ebola was quite high. So we had to have 100% coverage. On, on contact tracing. So Musakafala, who led the whole operation of contact tracing, had to go himself. Being a very big man in middle age, you know, he looked like clumsy dealing with women, but he was not. He had the kindest, biggest heart of everyone in that response. And he knew, having grown up in the slums of Monrovia himself, when he should go at midday, what he should bring as a lunch package for the woman he was visiting, how to be polite to her, leaving the car far away, not to be seen, walking in normally clothes that you would do in the suburb there, visiting the woman, talking with her, she accepted that they sat down and had the lunch from the lunch pack together. And then after a while, she told the story that she had had a husband who had beaten her severely. Severely. She had had a terrible life. Finally, the husband went away. And there was some peace in her life, but she was scared always. And he came every now and then and just grabbed one of the children to stay with him for some few days and then dropped them back. And she didn't dare to protest because he would just beat her. And her rights were so limited, so she couldn't go anywhere. And now he had to ask her, where is the child? He's with the father. What's the father's name? I'll never tell you. No one. I will never tell you. Where does the father live? I'll never tell you. He'll kill me. And then he had to continue to talk with her and find out, couldn't you go and look for your son? It was about your son's life. And she started to cry, you know, if, because I couldn't tell that man, that the child had been exposed to Ebola, he would beat me. Huh? And then, and then uh, uh, he managed to convince her that you go and find the child tomorrow, and tomorrow evening I'm back here. But I can't afford it, I have no money, and I have to go there, it's far away, I have to pay for the motorbikes. I can give you money. Well, that's fine, she said. He took up the banknotes and gave them to her. She looked at them and said, these are new banknotes. If I pay the motorcycle taxi with new banknotes, I know that there's something fussy and they'll spread the rumor. You have to give me old banknotes. So he took the banknotes, he rubbed them on the floor, he did this and gave it back to her and said, no, everyone can see that these banknotes were rubbed. I have to have really bad banknotes. And he accepted that, and he walked away, and he changed at the market, came back in a very calm way, gave her the old banknotes, and left her, came back next evening, and the boy was there. You have to see the lives through the data. It's all about people's lives. Huh? It's all about individual life conditions, you know. Then we need to have the numbers because we need to have to know how many women are living in that condition. We need to secure that all these women get attention. But it was very interesting that bringing Ebola down from that terrible situation, yeah, you could use numbers. But even then, we did severe mistake by using numbers because some cases who were very sick, some persons who were very sick were picked up in their home, brought to Ebola treatment units, they died, they were cremated, and the family was not informed. You can never, ever do that. You, 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 you lose the trust of that. You can never, ever, in any situation, deal with people who dies as numbers. They are always persons, and you have to have a dignified funeral of it. So this is what I'll say. No, I don't bring data to life. I try to see the people through the data. Huh? And, and let, me, let me start with that with doing with you.
What I have prepared here is seven factfulness questions about the world. In appreciation for the importance of the English language, Gapminder Foundation have given you a donation. It's a new word in your language. <laughs> Please use it. Please use it. I'll explain later what we mean with factfulness. It's a little more advanced than mindfulness. Huh? <laughs> Let's see how you are doing. Huh? I'll ask you, how many, how many children will there be in the world in the future? When I was born, there were less than one billion children in the world, about 800 million, uh, zero to 15 years. And then it increased during my lifetime to hit about two billion at the turn of the millennium, at the turn of the century. And UN's population division has made an estimate how many children there will be by the end of this century. It's one of these lines. The other two lines I made up, they are just fantasy. And they are quite agreement. What do the demographers say? Do they say we have to expect a continued increase of children to hit 4 billion by the end of this century? Do they say, no, the rate of increase will be slower and we will be just 3 billion children? Or do they say, no, the number of children in the world has stopped increasing. It will only be 2 billion at the end of the century. A, B or C. Can you use these devices? Now, one thing, you live in touchscreen, so you we have found out you are so careful. This is analog stuff, you have to press really hard. <laughs> press really hard, you know. And if you change your mind, you can press once more. You can press once more. There we are. Very nice. <laughs> oh, you are quite quick. When I was back in universities, they think for such a long time. <laughs> this is another way of asking. Out of 10 people in the world, how many have electricity? It's not 10, I can help you. Eh? It's not 100%. So 1 to 9, somewhere there. Thank you. After 10 girls in the relevant age group today, how many are enrolled in school? Is it 10%? Is it 50%? Is it 90%? I can help you once more, it's not 100%. <laughs> Thank you. Out of 10 children, the one years old in the world, how many got measles vaccine? Measles vaccine being perhaps the most important thing in health service, being an indicator if you have at all access to basic health service. How many of the 10 children get that really important vaccine, measles? In sub-Saharan Africa, being the region in the world with the worst health situation, what has happened to child mortality over the last 20 years? We know it quite well, due, not due to these registration, but due to quite good surveys that are done with three years interval. It was 18% in 1990. How did it change? Has it fallen to half? Has it remained more or less the same? Or has it increased like this? 
And as you see, this is not a quiz. This is not about whether you know an exact number. It's if you know the trend going, it's getting worse, it's the same, it's getting better. Life expectancy in the world, how long we are expected to live at birth, a baby who's born, how long they will live if things remain the same, the risk in the different age group remain the same. And I'm helping you here also. It is 83 in Japan being the highest, and Sierra Leone and Lesotho have 45, one being post-war and the other being quite heavily HIV affected. So the world average has to be somewhere between 45 and 83. Do you think it's 50, 60, or 70? Extreme poverty, well defined already in the Bible. Matthew 6, 11, our daily bread give us today. Huh? That means that, that, that having the subsistence secured, you are out of extreme poverty. And if you are not, you, you, you use almost all your resources for food. Has that percentage almost doubled, remained the same, or fallen to half? Thank you. We define factfulness like this, the stress-reducing habit of only carrying opinions for which you have supporting facts. And it's, it's our director, Ola Rosling, my son, the creator behind all these things I, I do, who came up with this. You see, we want, we want it not to be nerdy with data. We want it to be modern, to be fact-based. And in fact, if you know the world, you will have less crashes, less conflict, less, less you know, problematic things happening to you in the, in the coming decades. You know? It's much easier, it's more relaxed knowing it. And we think that we have come to the end of the post-industrial relativism, where everyone has the right to have their opinions. And you were not voting now, you were answering. We have brought right or wrong into the debate again. Uh, and, and let's see how you did on these questions. Aha. Uh Aha. -huh. Uh -huh. This is how the Swedes answered. Uh, we use web-based survey companies. And we thought, could you really measure knowledge? Yes, you can, because we used another company in Norway. And Sweden and Norway should be fairly similar. And we got similar results. We did it in Britain and we did the United States. And this is the right answer. You had a quite good result. Eh? And I would like to ask, after all those who knew that the number of children were not increasing, how many of you knew it from someone else than me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very bragging question, but it's interesting. I have one here. One here. What, where did you get it from? Uh, I don't recall where I got it from. But you knew it. It wasn't It, it wasn't Anyone else? Yes? Pardon? A newspaper somewhere. Newspaper, yes. Fred Pierce discusses it. Pardon? Fred Pierce discusses it in people quite. Good. More? My, My mom. Ma. <laughs> no one studied demography. The World Health Organization. Okay. I, I downloaded the data from the UN Population Division a few years ago. 
Yeah. And it's quite, yeah, I mean, it's there. I consider it now, you are, you are, you are good at this, but uh, you see the numbers we get. I consider this the biggest event in the history of mankind that was ever completely missed by media and education. It's so huge. It's such a huge thing, you know. But, but you were clearly over average here. Electricity at, wow. It's 80%. People coming out of extreme poverty, electricity is very high on their priority. If you would send people to rainforest who would really listen to people, very few go to rainforest and really listen to people, especially no one goes there and listen to young women. When will the feminists ever go to rainforest and get the correct study? Uh, today we get reports from people go there and take photos of males who are 40 years old and have some, some sort of nice feathers and stuff like this and look very ethnic, you know. <laughs> people want electricity, 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 and 80% got it. You are here like, this is like 40, 50 years after your time. Hmm? And I think it's a shame that 20% don't have electricity. Wow. You are not factful. <laughs> and this is serious. Because you are the creme de la creme. You are the elite in the world. And you don't know that 90% of the girls are enrolled in primary school. This is not my study or anything. This is the official best data we have available. So what is the problem? Is the problem that we need more data that we have to learn the bloody data we have? <laughs> <laughs> They're just stressing me. I'm trying to teach the data we have and while you're pouring in more. <laughs> This is very, very, such a lot of effort is placed upon the rights for girls and women. Such a lot of success are achieved and it's not known. This leaves young women throughout the world being met with severe bad attitudes. People in West Europe don't know that women in Syria have the same education level as West Europe had 1970. That's the, the educational level of women in Syria today. Huh? And, and, and I think it's a shame that not 100% go to primary school. I'm very concerned about this. But this is something else. Is it so that NGOs, those of you working for NGO, that it's one of the side effects of your work, this ignorance. I think so. I think so, because we, you put stories about these girls who doesn't go to school, and you rightly do so, you raise money, you have good project, but you leave the impression that these ones don't go to school. You have to correct that. You have to argue for future investments in human based on past success. And we have to, I think it's very typical. If girls and women achieve something, it's not known. It's disregarded. And, 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 and this has been such a fight. 
And what we know today in the world is that we are very soon getting into a situation where girls are doing better than boys. Of course, many of these girls get the quality of their primary education that is very far from what we want. Huh? The teacher may not be there all days. They may not be able to attend all the days. Um, and this is primary school. We're talking about primary school. Then things get worse. Many people even tell me about, don't tell that, because we can collect so much money on that bad perception. So it's better that people in the rich country think they don't go to school and give us money to help this girl. I don't think that works. I think that time is over. The world is too complex for that. That will lead to this girl being left out in the future, because she lives in extreme poverty. And of those not going to primary school, how many percent are girls? Those who are out of primary school. 55% are girls, 45% are boys. It's not a gender issue. Listen to Malala. If some people would listen to Malala and not use her as a symbol. See, I was in the World Bank when she came visiting that day and Kim asked her, why doesn't girls go to primary school? And she answered, girls and boys mainly don't go to primary school because they live in families that are so poor so they had to work to bring food to the family. She took a deeper, but there are also still some communities where there are cultural barriers for girls to go to primary school. She get it. If, you, if people just listen to her, if they would re write in the newspaper what she says, rather than who she is, all these terrible personal portraits and personal fixations all the time. She's so knowledgeable. I have listened through carefully her interviews, and she get it right all the time. Eh? And uh, and. Um, and this really, you have, to, you have to catch up. Next time I come here, I don't want to see any bars. <laughs> but there are some countries where there's a huge number of girls not in school. Yep, you're right. You're right. There are still some places where there are cultural barriers for girls, as Malala said. But most of those who don't go to schools are, are uh, due to extreme poverty. Due to extreme poverty. Vaccination. Eighty-five percent! Of course they are vaccinated. It's the most life-saving thing we can do to children. We've had this since the 1970s. It's the core, it's the center of aid. It's the most motivating for government to do to get vaccines to children. It's known throughout poor communities that there is measles vaccine and it saves lives. I studied I've done quite a lot of field service in Bandundu region in, in, in Congo, uh, which is one of the poorest parts, just inside uh, Kinshasa, but quite poor. Down in the southern part of Bandundu, it's really tough places, you know. I remember having an ill-prepared survey in a village where we had a riot, actually. We hadn't informed. We were going to collect blood. They were not well informed. And I had 200 persons attacking us, almost, wanting huh? to throw us out of the vi village. And there was a suspicion that the village leader had got money for us or something like that. And I had to stand and explain with the translator what it was that we were doing research. We were studying a disease. And after just about two, three minutes, a woman stepped forward, you know, and said, don't you hear that it makes sense what he's saying? Where do you think they picked that measles vaccine from? Do you think it grows on trees in their countries? Of course they do this research. That's what they call That's how they find out these things that can keep us healthy. Measles vaccine proves for me what they can do. Take my blood, doctor. And then the whole 
switched off. I find so many clever women in these remote villages that get it. And they know how measles, how dangerous it is. Now in Britain, Sweden, you know, and in the US and so on, there there are these post-industrial morons who don't get it. <laughs> Because they have problem with the industrial society, the modern societies, and you know, and they don't see anyone dying from measles. And even if you get measles, we have such an advanced health service, you don't die from it. The 23 nurses and doctors from West Europe and North America that were flown out of uh, West Africa during their first day of fever, not those who were flown too late, which were three or four persons. The ones who were flown out first day and had Ebola, no one died. Ebola is not a lethal disease if you have British Health Service. Measles is not a lethal disease if you are, uh, have this. But in poverty, it's one in ten, one in five who die from measles. Uh, and they know it in the local community. There's a demand for this. And, and one of the main reasons why we have this catch-up in vaccination, what is it? What is 50% of the reason for the fall in child mortality? Women's education, because 90% of girls go to school. So these two, sorry, this was the one I wasn't going to show. Girls go in school and kids get vaccinated. They, they're very linked to each other. This is very linked to each other. And here, yes, this you knew. Now how would this happen if this didn't happen and this didn't happen? Huh? This is really, that is a little, it's a little that this data is known, but you don't see the lives behind the data. Behind the data like this is women who have been fighting for their daughters going to school, they have gone to school, they have their children, you know, uh, b growing up, they have the access to, to the vaccine because they demand it also. Vaccination is very interesting. It has to be the demand from the community, the local organization, the support from the government, and money coming from aid organization with clever purchasing mechanisms. So we get a, a steady supply. This is working. We have, we have, we have uh, uh, child mortality falling there. And Sweden here, don't know it. Who is professor in global health in that country? <laughs> You see, it's very difficult. And I went to the zoo, you know, in Stockholm, and I wrote ABC on bananas and gave it to the to the chimps, you know. And 33% got it right. <laughs> this is you saw the other ones about population, number of kids not racing. Chimps were three times better. When you are worse than chimps, it means that you have preconceived ideas. You have pre you have a wrong idea. You don't guess. On this, with, with vaccination and girls in school, you didn't guess. You had a preconceived idea that it was much worse. You knew that there were girls who didn't go to school. You know that some go to school, but you don't have any idea about the order of magnitude, or some of you had, but most of you didn't have it. Yep. When you see the answer that they have the lowest number of Swedes, then you know what's right, don't you? <laughs> And here you really, you are really chimps here, come on, 33 percent. <laughs> it's interesting because what's difficult here is that the world average is closer to the best than to the worst. 
That's the new world. The average is closest to the best and to the worst. That's why you can't use the concept developing countries any longer. It's out, because it doesn't exist. It only exists at the tattoo in your brain. Huh? Because health has improved so immensely. Huh? Because 90% of girls are in school, vaccines are there available. What we saw before, electricity is in 80% of the homes. That's why people now grow up and we have these enormous success in health that we have more and more cancer and more and more myocardial infarction. That's what I call success. Because dying of cancer or myocardial infarction when you are 60 or 70, instead of dying from diarrhea when you are 3 or from tuberculosis when you are 18, that's the success we wanted. So many of the people, my colleagues, say, oh, the non-communicable diseases are so big, we have to focus on that. Yeah, no, we have to celebrate it. <laughs> That's what we wanted. I had one, of, one of my friends who came from uh, Sierra Leone, he, <clears throat> he's my age, and he came very early to Sweden and turned out to be a good singer. So he did his PhD, but he became a musician so successful, he stayed back in Sweden, and, uh, <clears throat> and he earned a lot of money on his music. And he sent it back to his father, you know. And then came that year when he w went back to see what they did with the money. <clears throat> and the father uh, took his cousin and they walked off to the, the rice field. And they showed him when sun was setting how they were spraying pesticides on the rice. And, and the now Swedish thinking, uh, Sierra Leone, he said, Oh, you have to be careful, you can get cancer out of that, you know. Don't, don't touch it, you know. And the father said, Son, that's what we want. <laughs> we want to die in cancer like modern people. We hate to die in malaria, malnutrition and diarrhea, you know, and hunger, you know. Now with this spray we will die in cancer. That's right what we want. And you see, sometimes it's very difficult to see the world from the richest end. You don't see the lives behind the numbers. You have to see the lights behind the numbers. And, and, and the world is like this. Now, uh, the last 20 years, the proportion in poverty, this you knew also. This you knew also. It's interesting, you knew those ones because you work with development and you know those two MDG, that child mortality has gone down and that, that poverty rate has gone down. But you didn't know the underlying facts that people have electricity, girls in school, and get vaccinated. That's why this has gone down, or largely explains why this has changed in this way. Yes, so factfulness was this. Now, <clears throat> let me now try to make an overview of the world. I will use this period I have here to try to give you an, uh, what we call <clears throat> a fact-based worldview. And the idea here is not to replace all those specific knowledges you have on different areas. You worked on violence and women, you have worked on, on, on schooling, on road projects. You know, I know that you have very knowledgeable different things. I don't do that. I just show you <clears throat> a shelf, like an IKEA shelf, where you can put your, all your knowledge you have. Because I think the main problem we are facing is that we don't have the underlying structure in which we put the detailed knowledge. And that's why it becomes a mess. It's like a garage where you put all your knowledge and you write developing world on it and everything is inside that and it's messed. We have to sort it out. First people, the biggest change in our time, or in my time then being 67, uh, <clears throat> 
There were six children per woman back, back 1800, on average. Some had many more, some had fewer, some had none. Yeah? And, <clears throat> and, what, what, and this was back in history. You go to the old Chinese censuses, you go to the rainforest, you know, today where people don't live in modernity, it's about five, six. Because the human way of life is that you breastfeed for three years, you get the menstruation and the ovulation again after three to four years, and children are born with three to four years intervals. And then during a, a fertile period, you, you get like five, six, seven, something like that. You know? so, <clears throat> and this didn't change much. Look here. I go all the way until I was, I was in secondary school here. In 1965, it's fallen to five. Huh? And Paul Ehrlich got scared, started to write the population bomb, which he published in 1968. You know? <laughs> and this was because death rates had fallen. Already here had fallen. Huh? So population, this remaining high birth rate, remain, or we should call it fertility rate. Fertility rate and birth rate are technically different things. Huh? Fertility is here, number of babies born per woman. And during my lifetime, this has happened. It's quite fantastic, isn't it? Wanted to get it to two, and this is how far we have got. And that is enough for the number of babies, number of children in the world to stop increasing. You have learned, many of you, that you need 2.1 child per woman for the population to be stable. But that's in a stable population where you have a life expectancy that's much longer. That is like 80 years. So actually for the world, for some peculiar little uh, as aspect, 2.4, 2.5 was enough for the number of children stopped increasing. Uh, and, and, and we know that this will happen. This is on its way. So, if you look at region, Europe fell very fast, very early. And here it fell mainly by more and more women being deprived of reproduction. In West Europe, never had so many women had at least one child as in 1970. This fell because many, quite a lot of women were outside reproduction. It's what we call reproductive density, how the children are distributed across the women. And, 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 and then uh, America came like this, a baby boom in the 1950s, in North America and also in South America, actually. Huh? And Asia then came here, here comes Asia, and Paul Ehrlich got very scared. But this is what happened. 1.6 in China, 2.4, 2.5 in India. The number of children have stopped increasing in India. The whole Indian subcontinent, the number of children is no longer increasing. And by now, all girls are in school, but many of those schools have too low quality. Quality has to get up. That is the focus now, to, to bring up quality. And then, <clears throat> with that, with girls in school, I don't know if I said that, I get this critique. Uh, don't say that, because then people interpret it as you say that gender equity is not such a problem any longer. That's a very stupid conclusion. Getting through primary school, it's so basic, it doesn't even have anything to do with gender equity. It's just stupidity not putting girls into primary school. Gender equity, the real fight of it starts at age 14. That's when it starts. Actually, in that old time, those strange culture when girls were told to stay home while brothers went to school, they would cry for a year, and then they would adapt. But now, 
They have gone to school. They know how to read and write. They spent more effort in learning than their brothers because their brothers could roam around and do whatever. Huh? So girls do better. And at age 14, they are told, no, you cannot go to your aunt in the city and take up that work. No, you have to marry that man. You have to do this, you have to do that. And if you try doing something else, you are threatened, you are exposed to violence, you may be raped. So, so this very brave campaign, which we all admire in India, where women stand up and say no to rape now, huh? that is a result of girls having gone to school, having other expectations. I think that having gone to uh, primary school made gender inequity worse, not less problematic. So what is the main cause of death in women from 15 to 19 years of age? main cause of death in these later teens, young women, 15 to 19 years in the world. Suicide. And it's not suicide, and it's in middle-income countries, especially lower middle-income countries. Now falling in China, increasing in India. Uh, having been very high in Iran, having been very high, high in, in Latin America. It's, a, it's not an... Uh, I had I had the the privilege to be co-supervisor for the first study on, on uh, suicide and suicide attempts in Vietnam. And we found a pattern where young women were not depressed for long periods. It was out of anguish, out of, uh, of, 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 of anger, uh, really like a protest suicides when they could not live their life as they wanted. And the main method they used is ag was agricultural pesticides. And while West Europe and North America are focused on some 25-year-old story of possible biomedical effects of pesticides in Central America, that is of very limited importance, so says the professor of global health. We miss out that the main health effect of pesticides is young women committing suicide from pesticides. Huh? And, and it's tragic, it's a tragic epidemic we have. Very difficult to deal with it. Actually, specifically to deal with it, I don't think it will work. It is gender equity that has to be achieved. And we have, the world has just started to achieve that. It's really important. And, 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 um, and fertility rate can fall without gender equity also being very big. Look at Bangladesh. Huh? Have fallen really much. Gender equity is very far away still in, in, in Bangladesh. Africa, then. Is anything happening in Africa? No, Africa. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, and we know that this will happen. We don't know how fast Africa will come down. This is really a matter of discussion, you know, and, and, and policy and what will be done, you know. It may be faster. There are some institutes who have done some, some analysis that say, no, Africa will probably get down faster. You see, they are so slow, they're so almost as slow as Europe was. Uh, but then, you know, Sweden forbid condoms 1909 and only allowed condoms to be sold again 1936. Uh, I was in the Student Union International Committee in 1968, 69 and 70, and we had a secret fund where we lended money to young female students who needed abortion. And where did they go to get the abortion? To Catholic Poland. To Catholic Poland. 1973, we got free abortion in Sweden, one year after India. We should be very clear that reproductive rights uh, that Swedes, and we are sort of proud that we talk about, those are not Swedish norms. They are modern norms. They are modern values. They are not Swedish values. 
Sweden was as ugly as any patriarchal society has ever been. Uh, and and um, so what we don't know is where we will end up here. This is very difficult to know. Will the world in the future be like Germany or Sweden? 1.5 children per woman or 2 children per woman? This we don't know. Huh? This is Bangladesh. See how they came down. Absolutely fantastic. Down at 2.2 now. Number of babies born per woman. And we asked Sweden, I managed to get SIDA, the Swedish aid agency, to include knowledge questions in their annual survey about the opinions about aid. So much about communication and com there's no information officers any longer, just communication officers. <laughs> Organizations used to employ teachers to be information officers, now journalists are, are employed because there are very many good journalists, you know, don't get work in media, so they are communication officers. And then we try to, what are the perceptions out there? What should we say so they like us? Rather than, what do they need to know? What do we have that we need to tell them? Uh, and, uh, and, and we put knowledge questions. Then we know that the Swedish audience, who, who relatively have heard about Bangladesh, you know, they thought it was 4.5 children per woman. We gave them some alternative. The mean answer was this. So I kept teaching, and it came there. I kept teaching. I kept. I, I have quite a good media coverage in Sweden. Huh? <laughs> Can you see the rate of improvement of knowledge in Sweden, <laughs> and the rate of change in Bangladesh? This is interesting. That countries progress faster than this stupid old Westerner's head can can uh, improve. Not stupid. Sorry, ignorant. It's not about being clever or not clever, it's being having the information or not having the information. Huh? So that means that Swedes think Bangladesh is as they were about 1991, something like that, uh, 20, 30 years behind. Uh, and, 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 and of course, here is my, my, my sort of beloved bubble graph. What should I show you here? Um, babies per woman, I want to and child mortality. Let me take you back, back to 19, 1965 here, like this. And I should zoom in. I should have done this before. Here we are. Uh, uh, uh. That was some buggy. Something happened there. Nineteen sixty-six. Western world. Size of bubble is size of population. Color is continent. Red is Asia, this is Japan. Yellow, Europe. Huh? Green, America, this is United States. And blue is Africa. And you had all those developing countries, they were up there, you know, and, and they had more than five children per woman. And these ones had two to three children per woman. This is child mortality. Here child mortality was below around 30 to 20. And there child mortality was above 100. And very few were in between. Very few. There were really two types of countries. Dividing the world into developed countries and developing countries was intellectually correct. And the definition used for developing countries when it started to be used in 1960 was having more than five children per woman. Hmm? Now we will see what, this, what has happened. I'll expand this. Oh, 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 oh. What did I do there? Something bad like this. There we are. I will run the world now. I have the f 
power to start the world, you know? Here we go. And as the year passes by, child mortality is falling. It's falling first, and then family planning starts in China, and they move to smaller and smaller family here. And you see Brazil is following. They don't care about the Vatican. They put on the condom, and then they go down here. Very, very successful. Indonesia is coming here. Muslim Indonesia is coming very fast. And this is Islamic Republic of Iran. See what they are doing. They are creating, you know, access to family planning for the entire population, you know. And there is Bangladesh overtaking India. And look at this. I like this one. This is Ethiopia. Ethiopia were, were moving extremely fast down here, as far as I understand the country that achieved all Millennium Development Goals. This is the world today. So if this was developing countries, these are the developing countries remaining. How come that these are called developing countries then? What is the definition for developing countries today? Does anyone know the United Nations definition for developing country? Ah, you're all right. It doesn't exist. <laughs> ah, 100% correct on that answer. 100% correct. The United Nations Statistics Division has a place on their web pages. You click enough, you find within the UN system there is no definition for developing country. It's a term used to blah, 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 blah. Uh, You used to have, what you have, you have an inefficient organization, a think tank based in Paris called OECD. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's not an official international organization. Uh, and and, and the, the OECD has a DAC committee, a DAC committee. And they had said for statistical purposes, they consider something development aid if it's given to a country below 12,700 and something GNI per capita in Atlas method. Uh, then it is a developed, then it becomes a developing country. So aid is given to developing countries because uh, developing countries are those by definition that aid is given to. So there is no, it's a absolutely circular evidence. Uh, and 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 um, and UN doesn't have it, but still use it. Still use the term, because it's in the mindset. And politically, I'm told when I speak at different levels in the system, we can't touch it, uh, because China is so clever. It suits them to be developing. And the most brilliant, you know, the most brilliant disguise which exists is that Singapore is a developing country. <laughs> They are richer than Sweden, have lower child mortality than Sweden, but in the MDG, yes, you are a developing country. They're very clever, the Singaporeans, very clever. Why should they boast being neighbors to big nations like uh, Indonesia and so on? So they, in the last in the MDG reports, Singapore, uh, South Korea and Qatar were all developing countries. There's no intellectual level. It's communication and feelings. We have to have some facts in it. Uh, uh, this Look here, this is child mortality of Kenya. Childmortality.org, a very good website operated by UNICEF. What I like with this, you have child mortality rates here, 300, uh, 200, 100, 0, 1955, going on all the way to 2015. Each of these colored strip here with some dots is one survey. You see why we know this data? So many surveys have been done. They give a little different results, but you see the pattern. And you see the scary things that happened in 1985, it stopped falling and it increased 1990. HIV, 
resistance to malaria drugs, political turmoil, and then this was brought around and it came down like this. And once again, I asked the Swedes, what is the child mortality in Kenya? And the first year, 2012, they said it's there. This is what they estimated. Uh, and then I kept teaching. I went into TV. I kept teaching. Yeah, I have some impact. So the Swedes now think it is as it was in 1955. <laughs> that year I was seven years old. That means that child mortality is more difficult, isn't it? Number of babies born per woman is easier to perceive. Child mortality, we just don't know the number. But the proportion, and we gave this in percentage, so Swedes thinks that 25% of children die. There's an enormous overestimation of the death rates in, in uh, low-income countries. One of the most terrible mails I kept keep getting from secondary school teach, uh, students who do their project work is, well, if you save the life of poor children, you destroy the planet. There's an attitude out in the schools that death keeps back population growth. And it's wrong. Bill and Melinda tells me the same thing. You know, the most common protest they've got over the last 10, 15 years is all these students with environmental concern who says, yeah, 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 this is very nice, but it's an ethical dilemma, dilemma because when you save these children, you know, uh, you will destroy the planet. And it's wrong. It's just ignorance. Huh? Look here. In the past, the two parents got on average six children, as I told you. Why didn't the population grow? It was very stagnant. This is like one billion here, if this is world population. One billion. It didn't grow much because one, two, three, four on average died before growing up to become parents themselves. And then some people claim that people were living in ecological balance with nature. And that people today in the rainforest live in ecological balance with, with uh, nature. Damned lies. People have never lived in ecological balance with nature. They were dying in an ecological balance with nature. They have to arrange funerals for the majority of their children. That's not living in ecological balance. Now, for the first time in the history of mankind, we see a glimmering little possibility and that's the SDG, that we may in the future be living in ecological balance with nature. And the whole industrial revolution that took off here in this country, you know, brought us this possibility. So good for burning fossil fuel, let's stop with it now. Yeah? Because we can't continue with it in the way we have been doing. But without that, we wouldn't even see this chance. This romantic idea that there have been something in the past, and that's promoted in the teaching of the world we're having at present. Huh? This continued like this, and in the, in, the, in, in, in the end here, 1850 to 1900, in Sweden and in Britain, what we saw here was that more children survived. That's the reason why North America was grabbed by the European. That's why 25% of the Swedes moved out to Minnesota, and the world population increased to 7 billion. It's a short world history there. You see. <laughs> and this rise, this rise is still a matter of enormous ignorance. Ignorance number one is, is that it's called exponential growth. This is no exponential growth. It's exponential growth here to this point. 
The last 50 years, it's been linear, absolutely linear growth. We have added about 1 billion in 14 years. And you keep adding the same amount for each time period, the percent of growth is falling, 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 falling. But no one explains that. Says, oh, the world population is out of, con out of control. <laughs> it's just that they hate people who are colored. <laughs> no, I'm serious. This is structural racism. It's bloody structural racism. Uh, don't use the term population explosion. It's telling that other people's loved children are bought. We should use proper wording when we talk about this. There are other words we have taken out in our language of respect of others. This is the next one we should take out. Uh, because we know what is about to happen. We will have the new balance. The old balance was controlled by death. Uh, the new balance is controlled by love. Because what we have done, the biggest thing in our time, is that we have disentangled reproduction from sexuality. The two best things in life. <laughs> Darling, let's have sex tonight. Darling, let's make a baby tonight. Those are not glued up on each other now, as they were in the past. Huh? They are separated and we can enjoy them both. And this is very important, because who could ever live with another person for several years without sex? You know? It's like the prerequisite for relations. And, 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 and then being able to decide when and how many children to have. And that's reality for 80% of the world population. It's, it's 20% that lack access to it. And I have to, at this moment, honor the Prime Minister of this country, together with Melinda Gates and the Nigerian politicians who took the initiative of increasing access to contraceptives. The London Agreement, that was in due time, because we have to reach all the way out. And, and, uh, and we know that this will happen. Now, how will this happen? How come that, that if I say that the number of children have stopped increasing, and we have this new balance here, which is the decided in the bedroom by the young couple in their pillow talk that they decide. Why will we get four billion more? Something must be wrong, isn't it? And, and, and that's contraintuitive. It's sort of contraintuitive. Huh? How come if the number of children have, have stopped growing and we will have this population development, these are the billions today. One billion in America, one in Europe, one in Africa, and four in Asia. The good thing with being an independent organization, that gap money, we can decide which country is European, you know. So, <laughs> so we decided to include Turkey. Otherwise, Europe would be so small, so it wouldn't even fulfill. And then we decided to make Australia Asian. They have to get used to it, finally. <laughs> That joke always works best in Britain. <laughs> the laugh in Australia is completely different. Yeah? <laughs> Pin code 1114. Remember that one. 1114. Huh? In 2050, no more in Europe and America, but one billion more in Asia. With that extra billion, the fast population growth is over in Asia. And up to the end of the century, uh, yes, one billion more in Africa the next 35 years. African population will grow to, with 100%, double. 
And by the end of the century, no more in America, Europe, and Asia, but one billion and probably two billion more in Africa. By this, the world population will stop. Well, how can I add all those billions, you know? Four billions if the, I say the number of children have stopped increasing. I'll show you. I have a special teaching tool here. <laughs> Each roll of toilet paper is one billion people. One billion people. We have, in the world today, we have two billion who are below 15. These are the children. Next group, 15 to 30, young adults, they are two billion. Well, I round off. Actually, they are 1.8. But to make it simple, I do it like this. Next group is one billion. Actually, they are 1.4 something. Eh? But I, I make it simple. Then. And this is 30 to 45, 45 to 60, 1 billion. And then it's my group, 60 years and older. And we almost managed to make it to 1 billion because we have some old ones who stay along, you know. And, and, and this is the world population today. This is the world population today. Now, why are those... This is like a population pyramid. If I would put it like this, you would recognize the population pyramid. Many of us think that the population pyramid is due to people dying off. No, it's not. It's like children surviving, so the number increased in the base. But now the number down here have stopped increasing. There will be no more children. This is already 71 years. Let's say that life expectancy remained the same. I will now show you how we can add 3 billion people without more children and without longer life. It's like magic. What happens to old people? They die. That's right. They die. The rest of you, have you noted what is happening? You are getting older and older and older. And in 15 years, you are 15 years older and then get the same number of children. This is in 15 years from now. The old die, you grow older and older and older and get the same number of children. The old die, you grow older and older and older and you get, yes, already here. Can you see? Uh, you have to get the children. You have to grow older and get the children. So in 45 years from now, you got three billion more people without any more children. Now, some of you look very doubtful, but if you have this at home, you can check. <laughs> now, there's one thing more. We are indeed getting longer lives. The whole idea that the world is getting worse, you know, that climate is changing and death rates are increasing and this climate refugee illusion, you know, uh, it's not right. We are going to get one billion more there. I want to be this one. I can follow statistics for 15 more years then. <laughs> now, I hear a lot of people in organizations, you know, population matters, they are called or whatever. Eh? Those people who can't see the lives through the numbers. They just look at the numbers. Eh? They don't see the lives through the numbers. They say, we have to stop population growth for environmental reasons. We can't be more people. We have to stop at 8 billion. Aha, uh -huh, very interesting. No, at least at 9 billion. Still very interesting. Who are you going to take away? If you want 9 billion, which one are you going to take away? Uh, like this? <laughs> for the old? Yeah, stop caring for the old, okay, but you still have 10 billions. Who are you going to take away of these ones? 
This is based on people having the life expectancy we have today and having one child each. That is, women on average have two children. So the only thing I can understand is that they love Mao Zedong. And they want to have one child families. It will look like this. You see it? This is what they want. And where should you start? If you want to solve environmental problems by getting one child families, where should you start? Of course in Britain and Sweden. Because we have two children per woman. And we consume a lot. So the greatest impact you would have of getting below two children is starting in the richer countries. So take away the child allowances, put fees on all schools, and try to win the elections. <laughs> I don't understand this. This is not about ethics, it's not about anything, it's just ignorance. And people don't understand the, the seriousness of the sustainability challenge. We have to fix life for about 10 to 11 billion. It can be a little less, can be a little more, somewhere around this. This whole idea, this remain of Paul Ehrlich, that you can avoid these extra billions. There's no way. This is mathematics. And people want to have debate about what 7 plus 4 is. <laughs> this is not something you debate. It's something you learn in primary school. But you see, it's full of opinions. It's too much opinion, too much debate. Too little, we have to have a, but you don't need so much core knowledge. Then there's lots of things to debate. There's lots of things of, of, of communicate. There's lots of work to be done. I'm not arguing or taking anything away. I just want to add the facts. Is life expectancy going to increase? Yes, probably it is. It is increasing in the world. It's going up all the time. Huh? And, and what we are now, if we get away smoking, whoff. We will have many extra years, but gender equity also keeps it down because the first two countries to get gender equity in, in lung cancer is Iceland and Sweden. And Iceland got it the same year they had a lesbian prime minister and Sweden got it the same year we had a lesbian bishop. So with rights come the rights to do things the way you want, you know. Whether you love someone of the same sex or you smoke, you know, it's, it's fine. So <laughs> things, and, and if, we get, if the Japanese women start smoking, they will drop their life expectancy, you know. Um, but also when you get gender equity, men lives longer. The gender equity in Sweden and also Britain is following now. The result, if men are more involved with their children and with families and so on, they, they drink less and they manage better when they divorce and they live longer. So, so it will very much be about, about um, public health issues, also medical things. If we take away myocardial infarction, heart and stroke, and hypertension, we take away cancers. Many of them we can reduce. We are left with osteoporosis and Alzheimer. And that kills us later and slowly. The only thing you can hope for is that you get your Alzheimer before your osteoporosis, because then you forget the pain. <laughs> so it's sort of, it's sort of, yeah, we, we may have more, but that is not the main. The main thing is the inevitable fill up of adults. And we know this. This is the, the projection of, of, of population from the UN. Uh, population division. They said 3 billion in 1958 and then it increased like this, they said. And it wasn't believed. 
This was published 1960. I was 12 years old. I remember the day in primary school because I had a very good primary school teacher. And she took up things that was in the news. She was modern already back then. And she wrote on the blackboard, now we are three billion, three and all those zeros. Huh? And, but United Nations, she said, they are predicting that by the end of this century, when you are old, there will be twice as many, six billion. But everyone knows that that will not happen. Aha, we said, no, it cannot happen, because they say that India will have more than one billion people. And this is impossible, because Indians are Hindus and Muslims, and they are fatalistic people who cannot plan for the future. Huh? And, and, and they, will, they will starve and they will kill each other. This is what we, my generation, were spoon-fed with. Now it's more subtle. It's more subtle. It's hidden behind environmental concern. But this, this concern about numbers of population, it's over. We just need to have good conditions for all women in the world and for them to get away from poverty as soon as they don't need their children for work, as soon as their children survive, they want contraceptives and they should get contraceptives because it will bring them away from poverty. We know, don't need these numbers any longer. We know that we have to be sustainable for around 10 to, to 11. We don't need to have these population motivations any longer. Those we need to calculate when it comes to sustainability. I will show you that. This is how they did in their, in their forecasts. And then we know, now we know. We know how many it was. 6.1, respect for demography. <laughs> they were 3% wrong in a 42-year projection. And still today people debate whether they can predict the future or not. If anyone can predict the future, it's demographers. Economists can't. <laughs> Medical people, we can't. Can we tell us what epidemics we will have next year? No, we can't. Uh, they just come as surprises all the time. Many other difficulties, you know, but, but demographers know these things. This is what will happen. Adults will increase. The inevitable fill-up of adults. I will show you it in more detail here, so you get it clearly. Here's the details. Oh, sorry, sorry. Each doll here is 100 millions. This is 1,000 millions, 1 billion. You know? Here it is like this. And what I'm showing you now is this situation, which we have 19, uh, 2015. This is Europe, 15, 30, 45, 60 years. I am this one. European, you know, one of these 100 millions is me uh, in Europe. Americans, almost the same, lacking some retired people in South America. That will soon fill up. Huh? Africa already today more children than the entire America and Europe together. You start in Argentina, through Brazil, all North America, turn right through Europe, Turkey, all of Russia, and you don't find more children than you have in Africa already. Then Africa is not so many old people. So if by magic Africa would get two child families as of tonight, eh, they will still double. Can you see? They will fill up this area eventually. This is the reverse of a population pyramid. Huh? We've opened up to see this space that will be filled. China and Asia will not get an older population because they will live longer. They already live long. It's because of the fill-up effect. And the fill-up effect has not been understood. It's called demographic momentum. 
And that's why I use this. You have to see it visual. If you don't see it visual, I have failed to explain it verbally or in written. You have to see it happening. Here I will show you how it will happen. Uh, you see Asia, number of children have stopped increasing. You remember the red line from Asia, it came down to two? Huh? And, and Africa still 4.5, so they will continue to increase. How come, how come then, if the number of children will increase in Africa, how come that it won't increase in the world? Because of this. The old die, the rest grow older, and here come the children. And look, one more in Africa, one less in Asia. The number of children will start decreasing in Asia. China is converting primary schools to homes for the elderly. For every four children that turns 15 in China, three are replaced by Chinese babies, one is replaced by a Nigerian baby. Do you think of that? Children are moving as a group, are moving from Asia to Africa, are moving from higher wealth to lower wealth. That's that the continuous focus on child welfare is very important. Because children is the age group that is not getting richer and richer because we still have the fast population growth among the extreme poor. The old die, the rest grow older, and they have children. The old die, the rest grow older, and you have children. You see more and more in Africa and less and less in Asia. And here, the old die, the rest grow older, and you have children. And you see, the world will be Africa and Asia. This is marginal. The center of the world will no longer be London. It will be Dubai. The North Atlantic will be, not be the center of world trade, it will be Indian Ocean, not Pacific, Indian Ocean. Uh, and this is the big, inevitable fill-up of adults, these ones. They are inevitable. Even, and they, the whole population projection, many haven't understood that, the population projection is based on continuous fall of fertility rate, of increased access to, to, to contraceptives. If you stay with the, with the fertility rates we have today, we will have a huge population in the future. These 10 billion is not nothing happening. It's lots of things happening. It could happen even faster, and that would be nice. Eh? If we got 100% of girls in school, if we got 100% vaccinated, 100% of women had access to choose when they want contraceptives. Uh, and and, and uh, there can be longer lives. I filed an application for this one. So. <laughs> this is what we don't know. How fast Africa gets out of poverty. And why is this decreasing? Why are the number of children decreasing? It's not the one-child family thing in China. Uh, uh, China has 1.6, whereas Hong Kong has 1.1. Why is Hong Kong, and Hong Kong is urban, you would say, okay, take Taiwan then. Taiwan is one child per woman without one child policy. China has one child policy with 1.71 children per woman. First conclusion, the Communist Party is not so powerful in the bedroom. <laughs> On the squares, yes. The tanks run the squares. They rule the squares, but not the bedrooms. Huh? People continue to get kids. So what is it? I learned, oh, that was Macau, it says, but Hong Kong is just next to it, just next to it. Well, I learned that in Hong Kong when I lecture at the bank conference, 
we fund a lot of Gapminders free website is funded by obscene lecture fees that I charge from the financial sector. <laughs> so we, I lectured at this bank conference and ended up at the dinner with this very brilliant young banker. She was 37 years old, you know. She told me, this was five years ago, she told me about how China would be a net exporter of capital and everything before it happened. And then I asked her at the dessert, you know, do you, do you have a family? And I said, no, no, I haven't had time, I just work. But would you like to have a family? And she looked out of the window, the Bay of Hong Kong there, sunset, and she smiled and said, yes, I'm thinking about children every day. It's the idea of a husband I can't stand. <laughs> So you see, at the same time as we have these countries, we have these countries over here, you know, and you know them, Afghanistan, you have Congo, Nigeria high because of the high fertility rate in northern Nigeria, not southern, huge disparities within Nigeria. These countries, we have, at the same time, we have the concern of these countries that are below replacement level. What all countries need is balanced population. And the idea that we will solve environmental problems through, through uh, reducing population from 10 to 11 billion, I just don't think that is irrelevant. It's even a dangerous concept because it takes attention away from where the most pressure of environment is taking place today. I'll show you. I have to jump this one. Now let me show you this. If I put maternal mortality on this axis, I'll do it like this. I put maternal mortality on this axis, I put money here, GNI per capita, the cutoff we are using, we use GNI per capita exchange rate, 300, you know, 4,000, 13,000 here. This is the average maternal mortality rate of the world today. This is high maternal mortality, color is fertility rate. So red here is eight children. Uh, yellow is six children, green is four children. Can you see? And, and size of the bubble here is number of women dying. What you talked about, number of women dying. You can see where you have big bubbles up here. It's not because they have big population. They have high rates of maternal mortality. And they all have many children. Get contraceptives and you solve almost half of the maternal mortality problem. Uh, and, and, and then they are blue down here and they become very, very small, the bubbles. America as Melinda Gates always emphasized, is the country that increased maternal mortality due to inequity within the country. Huh? Now, <clears throat> that's low-income countries. One billion people below $1,000. This is high-income countries. One billion people above 13,000. <clears> and here in between, middle-income. It's a too big group to discuss about. Middle-income countries, it, that's the world population. It's five billion plus. You have to divide it in lower middle and upper middle. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. That was what was so interesting with, with your analysis financing the future. That you, you segmentize the world. This is how business do. When business want to sell whatever, Coca-Cola, menstruation pad, they segmentize the world and see what is their demand, what can they afford, what is their demand, what can they afford, what is their demand. They don't have one business plan across income ranges so wide. The income difference within uh, uh, middle-income countries, it's 13-fold. You can't treat that as a group. And look, 
the, 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 the low-income countries have 450 maternal mortality, here 240, there 57, and there 17. The big jump is between lower-middle-income countries and upper-middle-income countries. This is the big jump. And the way analysis is done in development aid is appalling. And there are many NGOs who have the interest to defend their, what they say, nice projects here. And they are forceful, and they are doing good work, but they distort the whole debate, and they distort the allocation of huge amount of money for small good projects. We have to have an analytic analysis of the, uh, this, that this is where the fall really is. Some of $4,000. Probably Garvey, who put the cutoff rate at 1500 put it too low. And now everyone wants to use another indicator. I hear that. Oh, you can't use money as a cutoff. You can use money as a very good cutoff, but you have to discuss where the cutoff should be. Instead of discussing where the cutoff should be, you want to make some other complex indexes. Because aid, after all, is GNI. It's this, this cash money here where it should be used. Uh, I can do the same thing here. This, oh, this is the new. Uh, uh, SDG goal for maternal mortality. And you can see it's meaningless to try to do that as an average of the world. MDG were the low-hanging fruit and we could use world average. SDG are the high-hanging fruit, not only high-hanging, but high-hanging, high-in high in remote rural areas that are difficult to reach. And you have to have very specific analysis, much more advanced thinking, otherwise this will be nothing. And it's partly data, I agree with you, of course I agree with you, but it's also the ability to handle data, not for communication purposes, for God's sake, but for analysis purposes and investment purposes. That is what data is mainly, mainly used, as you rightly said, you rightly said. Child mortality, same thing here. Color, size of bubble, number of children dying, color is... Uh, is um, fertility rate, and here, this of course is Angola. If you get rich fast from oil, it takes you one generation to convert that money into social progress, and we expect Angola to come down here, as had done other oil countries in the past. Middle-income countries here, 76, 53, 19, 7. Once again, independent, the big jump is there to there. As of today, no longer discussing middle-income country as a group. Cut them in the middle. Because this is somewhere where you get, really, you start to get welfare here. Yeah? And, 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 and looking at, at civil registration, as you said, there is no way we will help extreme poverty by civil registration. Because you can't start by registering the birth and the death of a child without having no services whatsoever. But when you have services, then you should have birth registration so you don't miss out. Yeah? But, but those in extreme poverty here, you know, we have to have the fragile nations, which are this group up here, they have much higher. So even within the law, that's also what you did in financing the future. You divided the low-income countries into two groups. That was brilliant. It was a very advanced document. And that is the reason why I'm so proud to be able to stand here in some exchange for that. I'll jump this one. Now, this is how, how a, a remote district looks like in, in, in rural Africa or in, inside India. A district with 300,000 people. They have a river passing this way. 
they have a road passing this way, and they have a district capital. That happens to be exactly where the road crossed the river. And where do the people in extreme poverty live? You said that we had to have the information. Yes, but we have to convert information into understanding. And we know where the extreme poor are. They're not in, in slums. They are there. This is the hospital in the center. There's a health center there and there, and there's a health center there and there. And those in extreme poverty who doesn't have access to maternal care, they live there, 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 and there. This is where Boko Haram hides. This is from where the Ebola virus came. We cannot have these corners. Extreme poverty is unstable for the entire country, for the entire world. This has to be finished. It can be done in 15 years, if it's focused directly. But numbers are not mainly for communication, it's for analysis. I think I stopped there. Thank you for attention. Thank you, Hans. That was exceptional. And I'm certainly never going to look at a toilet roll in the same way again. <laughs> now, we have time for some questions for the audience. Um, we'll take questions, I think, in groups of two so that Hans can remember them and answer them more fully. Um, there are people around with microphones. If you could please, when you get the microphone, um, very quickly introduce yourself, your name and your organisation, if you are affiliated with an organisation. And then please um, keep a question very brief and a genuine question. This is just to be fair to everybody else who wants to ask, because I'm sure there are going to be a lot of people who, who are going to want to pick up on some of the points from that really stimulating presentation. So, let's start. And also protest, because I made a lot of simplification. I'm really grateful <laughs> if you correct this either here, afterwards to me, or on the web somewhere. Do criticise. Okay. Good. Right, I'm going to start with these two here, gentlemen here, and the woman two rows behind him. Can you talk anything about... Sorry, can sorry, you just yeah. quickly introduce yourself okay. as well? Yeah, uh, Seamus Anderson from World Vision. Um, can you talk anything about the effect of extreme wealth on uh, poverty eradication? So this week, uh, Credit Suisse uh, put a report out saying that the 1% the, the now controls more uh, of global wealth uh, than the rest of the world put together. Um, so I, I just want to, do, do you have opinions on that, on, on how that actually affects our, our um, vision to, to eradicate poverty? Thank you. Mm. And just um, two rows behind here, please. Uh, Catherine Buckle, I work at BBC Media Action. Um, I was just wondering about the uh, ageing population. So you can see that there's going to be a lot more older people as a proportion of the world population. Um, so I was just wondering what you think the effect of that's going to be and what the problems that we are going to see in the future. Thank you. So one question on inequality and one on ageing, Hans. Yeah, can I have my image back? This is income distribution of all countries in the world, 1800, yellow Europe, green uh, America, blue Africa, red Asia. This is extreme poverty, 190 as you know now. This is $10, this is $100 how it changed, and I'm showing now income because you asked about wealth. One of the main mistakes is that we confuse income from wealth. Wealth is extremely unequally distributed. Income is not in the same way, because ordinary people, we all have incomes, otherwise we would die. 
but we use the income, we consume it, so we are not left with so much savings in the end of the year. But as the rich people who have high income, they save almost everything, you know, and they just get richer and richer. So first, to get the idea of, of the income, which is the most important. Uh, wealth is for investments, you know, income is for consumption. Uh, so here is what happened as years passed by, and in 1970s, we had this divided world. We had number of people increased in Asia and in Africa here, and then this was the poor and this was the rich. Uh, and of course you had the very rich, those you talk about, ooh, we don't even see them, they're back there behind you somewhere there, you know. Uh, that's, and they started to accumulate the wealth, and that just continues that way. But the income goes here. The important thing for me is that these people over here could help these one with investments, but they're too poor to give a return on capital. So they won't do it, so we have to deprive them of their money, either by taxing them, uh, or having them to become philanthropists, you know, and join the giving pledge and put their money available in rational ways. Uh, and if we do that, then we get people out of extreme poverty. Look how many were in extreme poverty here, China and Africa. But this has happened now, as you knew. There's no two humps any longer. Still, we have this appalling amount of people in extreme poverty, unacceptable. That can be pushed up here. This won't be solved by investments. It needs it need roads, schools, and so on. This is where aid should focus, having read your report, you know, investing in the future. The shame is that these people in the poorest countries get least amount of aid per people in extreme poverty. A lot of because of the push to remain aid and that stupid argument that most of the poor live in middle-income countries. That is just a distortion of how we measure uh, purchasing power. We measure purchasing power in these countries on the basket that involves a lot of rich people, so they appear to be poorer than they are. Forget the poverty measure, look at fertility rates, look at maternal mortality, look at child mortality instead, and then you see where the extreme poverty really is. And then, then these people need... Money can take... investment can take care of it from here, and taxation, which you showed very clearly in the social impact. So I can only... I'm coming back to your, your study all the time. But over here we need other investment. Yes, so deprive them of their money. Deprive them of their money and invest it. The problem of the world is that we have the money in the wrong place. The money are in few rich people in Europe and North America and not investing in cement and roads, you know, and piped water and agricultural, you know, uh, irrigation system where it's needed. The money had to go. Huh? And, 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 and the best, if you want really to get, you have to have investment in Africa. Lots of money had to go there. I had the privilege of speaking in African unions, you know, and, and Kosasana de Lima Suma has a very good plan, and that's, that's two or three zeros more than age, she says. The investment you need in Africa. Huh? And, and you have to offer that investment with return of capital. Otherwise they are greedy and they would keep it. But now they get better return of capital here than they get over here. So money should move away. But how do you stay politically stable here when the working class disappear over here? This is, this is a real challenge of where that money will go. I spend lots of my time lecture. I, almost this lecture, same lecture I give to you, I give to the big banks, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, UBS. Uh, and, and, and because the investors want to know the same things. And they are actually 
Sorry to say, they are more knowledgeable, the bankers, about how many girls go to school and how many kids are vaccinated, mm -hmm. because they are quants. They go for the numbers. It's called quants. Mm -hmm. huh? And they really go for the number. They take away these emotions. Their problems is that to own the money, they have the old ideas. Huh? And they, they don't want to invest in Africa. We need to focus aid here. Then, of course, we need civil society. But it's rich people in many countries. Look at China, for instance. Look at China here. There. There's China. That's the United States. See what an overlap it is. What an overlap today. Yes, going back to 1970, there was no overlap at all. The poorest in Mississippi, rural Mississippi, earned more than the Politburo in Beijing. Because they lived very modest at that time, stupidly modest. Huh? And, and, and then this happens. So we need to segmentize it also to see the aid money would help here. But here's where you get lots of corruption. Here you can't send any sort of volunteers. Here you need skilled professionals who know how to collaborate and how to operate. Really professional skill. And then you come over here, and from here on, I don't think you should have any aid. I'm, I have a rule in my secret law, never about China and aid, never give aid to a country that buys Swedish car factories. <laughs> <laughs> And the second was about aging. Uh, aging. Yes, and that is this one, which I didn't show you. It's this one here. And we, 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 uh, sorry, I changed this one to life expectancy. This is free on the web. You can use and, and play around with this. I can destroy your weekend. Yeah. <laughs> and here and your relation, then also you have, you will get very annoyed. And we put logarithm on this one. And I zoom it a little here. And I want to show, let me show, for instance, Bangladesh and United Kingdom. Where do we have United Kingdom? Should be up, up. I have to do it there, it's falling. So I'm uh, taking them back in time. Look at the different trajectories. Bangladesh today have a life expectancy of 70. It corresponds to United Kingdom in the 1950s. That's why they have come. It's quite a success. Eh? And they have the same amount of money as United Kingdom had 1813. 1830 here, perhaps. Isn't it fantastic? They are 120 years ahead in, in, the, in the health dimension compared to the economic dimension. So how should Bangladesh be able to take care of their old people that now needs hip replacement, cataract surgery, they need, they need hearing devices, they need cancer operations. There's only one way of doing it. Fast economic growth for the next 30 years. I love money. <laughs> because you need money. You can't provide this. You discuss your wonderful NIH. It's just about the money. Without the money, you can't do it. Even the softer part of elderly care is qualified people who take care of old people. You, you can complement it. This is very dramatic. Look, look at all these countries here. I take, take away... Take away this, and then, then I, I, I put out there. Almost the entire world here, 
almost the entire world here are much healthier than UK was at the same economic level. Even my colleagues get carried away. They say, oh, health is so unequal. It's, so... it's real success. We, public health, we won over the bloody economists. <laughs> this is where they failed. The wallet is the injustice of the world. The big inequality is not in health, it's in money. And you need to take care of old people. You really need more money. Huh? You, can do, you can do wise analysis, you can start doing some things. Of course you can do the cataract surgery can be made, for instance, taking down blind people and disabilities. But it's an enormous challenge of being here, up here, when all these diseases exist. And also the challenge is, what should people do when grandma gets the cancer and she can be cured if they pay? It's one major reason for falling back into not only poverty, but extreme poverty, that you have to take care of your dear ones when they are old. And what policy should the country run? I hear this talk about equality, equality. But it's very difficult to have equality in health service. Do you expect people in Tanzania to let their old people die in order to vaccinate the children in Sumbawanga, in the, in the interior of the country? No. The highly qualified Tanzanian expects some sort of health service for them and increase their life expectancy. I cannot see that the countries who are worst off can have much more equality in health. All the groups have to improve. It shouldn't increase the inequality, but to decrease the equality and to avoid inequality, that's Pol Pot. That won't work taking glasses away from people, you know, to do We have to live, it's a very dramatic situation that people now, the countries now get out of, of, of the diseases of poverty at a much lower economic level. And that's partly due to effective aid. That's partly due to these girls having gone to school at a much lower economic level. This country, United Kingdom, was so bloody unjust in this period, the kids were in the coal mines here. Huh? And this was very, very you know, unequal here. Then came the health improvement after John Snow and Kohler and so on, and it went up there. That was much later. We can see when that happened. You know, that this period, first, that the country just got richer. Then somewhere here, you see where we are? We are in the 1800s. It was ugly all the time, all the way through. Uh, look at here, India, 67 years. The same as United, uh, United Kingdom had after the war. And the amount of money they have is still down here. That's the challenge. Fast economic growth, which then should be taxed, of course, and which should be, be allocated wisely. But without the money, no justice. Thank you. Right, let me take some questions from this side and at the back, just to mix things up a little bit. I've got one question at the very back there, and then one a few rows ahead in front. Thank you. The children, yeah. There, 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 and there. <laughs> and some have mothers who are lone, single mothers who are stigmatized and marginalized. I don't have them here, yes, but that data exists. That data exists. Of course, we need a better mapping of poverty. I doubt that we'll get it by civil registration. One promising thing is take the last population census and take the use of cell phones and see why people exist who doesn't use cell phones. Go there. Mm -hmm. 
Don't have the illusion that everyone has cell phones. Some don't even have cell phone coverage because they don't have money, so who should cover them? Uh, where, where the cell phone doesn't reach, that's the problem. Uh, we saw that in, in, during the Ebola epidemic in Liberia. Small little Liberia had huge areas without cell phone coverage. The teams who went there had to have satellite telephones. Uh, and there were villages that were eight hours walking on paths that motorbikes couldn't pass. Eight hours. Make a road there. You know, it's, it's some very basic things that is needed out here. Uh, and otherwise, and the problem is what I say in that documentary. The documentary, BBC is a very strange organization. <laughs> <laughs> they are very nice and they have highly qualified people working there and make good programs. But then they call them public service. And when they made the documentary, they put it on the web. And then they geoblock it for the rest of the world, a little like North Korea, but the other way around. <laughs> and then after one month, they take it down. They take it down. So Gapminder Foundation, who put lots of money into doing these documentaries, we have to pay ransom to liberate these programs. <laughs> and then we do that, and then we put it up on our web. So it's free on our, on, on our web, gapminder.org. Uh, but it's very good, and, 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 and Wingspan, the team who makes them, that's just brilliant. You are just brilliant in London doing this. Uh, but, but that public service, that term has to be changed. It's more like BBC service mm -hmm. uh, than public service. So, so what we say there is ending this is better to do fast than slow. Better to do, because as long as we do it slowly, they keep doubling in 20 years. The population keeps doubling here. So get it done fast. Uh, get get child mortality down, uh, get uh, a slight improvement in productivity so they don't need child labor, uh, and then give access to contraceptives. And you can end this in 15 years. If you do it slowly, it will just continue. So this is the problem. The problem is uh, when you put the question where the children are, it's also all these war zones. I mean, to that sad group of children not in primary school, we had to add a lot of Syrian children. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why we see refugees coming and paying such a lot of money to go on dangerous boat to Euro Europe is that the children don't even get education in the refugee camps. Because the rich countries have not funded UNHCR. It's a shame beyond understanding. We haven't even given half the budget to UNHCR. And that's much, much less money than what we... Uh, give to those refugees who turn up in West Europe. Well, you don't get them because you have a channel, but we have them. Huh? Uh, you have them in Calais. Huh? And, uh, and Sweden keep receiving them. Sweden is now cutting down the aid to 25%. One quarter of Swedish aid now is receiving refugees in Sweden. The government will probably cut away another quarter of Swedish aid, bringing it down to half because of the cost of the refugees in Sweden. That's a very shameful way of doing it, huh? because each Syrian refugee who comes to Sweden, you know, almost costs so much, so it kills about 10 children by cutting back on family planning, vaccines and other things. And it's a very, very strange reallocation. And if anyone knows what accountability means, it means putting cost on the right account, isn't it? It's about bookkeeping and claiming that it's development aid for the poor nations when you use it for 
ordinary reception of Syria. And the Syrians are welcomed in Sweden. I've stood in our big hockey arena and I asked them welcome because they are doctors, architects, designers and economists. It's the 3% most highly educated. It's a blessing to get all these people into the country. But we shouldn't use aid money for the adaptation. They will make a return in the economy very soon. So, so that's uh, it's very strange that that money is not used more logically. We need a lot of data used back home also. <laughs> very true. Now I had another question here on this side. Let me got, take... Hi. Oh, sorry, sorry, I've got a mic. Is, is it okay? <laughs> um, hi. I'm sorry, you just asked your question, I think. No, I didn't. Oh, sorry. Okay, go oh, ahead. Sorry. <laughs> hi, um, Harriet, I'm a student. Uh, I was wondering... Uh, like, leave no, no one behind is a brilliant tagline, and I think NGOs and donors alike are all bought into it. But in reality, sometimes donors want to tackle areas where there's lots of people and they've got lots of quick wins um, and bang for buck. And I was wondering, how do you persuade people? Well, I, I don't get it. Take so, the question clearly and sorry. in Swinglish, please. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Um, there's, like NGOs and donors, I think they agree with the tagline of leave no one behind, including those in the rural areas. But often people want value for money and the decision makers would rather put a hospital in a city where they can affect lots of people's lives rather than in a, near a village where they get 10 people rather than 100. So I was, I was wondering whether NGOs based in the rich countries run the risk of giving priority to disprivileged people in upper middle income countries because they are easier to reach and easier to understand for those who give money to them. These people are difficult to understand. I didn't understand these people from data. I understood these people from doing field service during 20 years, one to two months a year becoming humble after 10 years when I understood how much these women understood and really under realizing that qualitative research methods were most important. Humbly sitting and listening when my, my, my African PhD students, when they interacted, and especially the females one, when they interacted with, with, with the other women here. That's when I started to understand. You know? And, and, and this, is, this is not glamorous. You know? It's much better to have, use that disprivileged people in the district center or somewhere else and nothing is so attractive as street children in big cities you know? which is a problem which is of course is a problem many NGOs are doing fine where they're doing but they're drawing away the attention from the poor someone has to defend these people someone has to stand up and see and do it that and that leaving no one behind yeah that's a nice phrase but show me the numbers <laughs> That's would you what you showed in your report. It's not going that way, it's going right in the other direction. Hans, would you level the same charge at um, official donors as at NGOs, in terms of ignoring the very poorest people? DFID is one of the best donors we have in the rich countries. You are highly qualified. You have the benefit of a lot of qualified immigrants from across the world. Huh? who know the context, and you have a tradition in Britain for bad and for, for good of working across the world and, and knowing other realities, which countries like Scandinavia don't have. Uh, Scandinavia is good for diplomatic negotiations and, 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 and some We have a very bold Minister of Foreign Affairs who tells the truth about Saudi Arabia, and we are proud of her. Perhaps it was not too wise to say it just this year, you know. <laughs> But still, you know, so, so there, there are some things, you know, with, which we can do profile. But you're quite good. You're quite good. Okay. Diffid is quite good. 
So if you criticize Dirifit and make them better, the others have to follow. Okay, I think we have time for a couple more questions. Let me move back to this side of the room, lady here. Thank you. Um, my name is Antoinette Salah. I'm an agricultural consultant. Can you say something about the poorest of the poor, who are usually farmers and women, and very often they are very clever women? And just here in front. Uh, thank you, Hans. My name is Andrew Lamb, and I'm an open data consultant with the World Bank. The implication of what you were saying about needing about getting to areas like in those corners with roads and hospitals and schools is that we need a lot more emphasis on infrastructure in the aid sector and a lot of NGOs aren't set up to deal with sort of engineering and technology, they're not. My, my question is, um, in my experience, there seems to be more data around health and around um, economics than there is around infrastructure and engineering capacity. Um, is that your experience as well? Thank you. So, well, those two questions are linked because it's the <laughs> women in those remote villages that ha do not have that infrastructure, yeah? and 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 I, <laughs> I have a, I have a, don't have a, a graph for that, but I have an answer for that. <laughs> I have, didn't I have that one? Uh, 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 uh. No, I took it out here. So let let me let me leave it. Um, it took me 10 years to understand that those women understood more than me. Instead of doing simplistic research and trying to tell things. There's such an idea that you should tell people in remote areas and those women. Many men, and it's really women because men often have left. Both bad men and good men have left. Because they, if they're good, they try to earn something somewhere else. To better the condition for the family moving or for going back with investments. But the only thing I can say, listen to them. Listen to them. That's the most important. Eh? And truly listen to them, not by forming a bingo uh, business NGO or something, you know, that has the interest, but truly listen to them. I, it was a great experience working with the Ebola epidemic. Those people, many of them in government, who had the ability to listen. Eh? That is important. And, and with infrastructure, yes, but we have maps. We can see where there's roads or not. And I think using the censuses and placing mapping, mapping tools will be more important as you go for the low hanging fruit in remote areas and the higher hanging fruits, you know, in central areas. We have to know where they are. And that's a problem because we have been basing the discussion of inequality on the quintiles. Huh? And quintiles we use because we have national surveys and we only know the child mortality and the maternal mortality for the country. And then we get the quintiles, those who have less schooling and so on, there, but we don't know where they are. And the Minister of Health in Tanzania told me years ago, I don't need any quintiles because they don't come with a director I can fire. <laughs> You need, you need information of that area and you need to see whether that area is performing or not. So quintile are fine, we use them, but we have to move on. And then we cannot, in the remote areas, we will not get maternal mortality rates for districts. We will not get that. We will not get child mortality rates for districts. We have to look at coverage of uh, delivery service. We have to look at coverage of vaccination. That we can get per area. And we can see where do we have people with no services. 
and I think much more focus on service provision than on human rights. Human rights is fine for Sunday. <laughs> on Monday you need budget and coverage. Thank you, Hans. I'm afraid that's um, all the time we have for questions. But it's been absolutely fantastic. And just particularly, I've loved all the way through your emphasis on listening to people themselves and letting data tell people's own stories. I think, just personally speaking, one of the things that I'm proudest of at our data work in ODI is the huge survey that we ran with the United Nations where we asked eight and a half million people around the world what they wanted out of the, in the Sustainable Development Goals. And the results of that survey have been used in the negotiations, an example of how you can use numbers and numbers about that very thing, about what people themselves actually want and how they tell their own stories to influence these outcomes. So it's been a, a fantastically interesting and exciting morning. I'm going to invite Kevin to come back to the stage to say the formal thanks from ODI, but for me and all my Before team, thank you one so mention, much. These cost about £50 each. <laughs> Gap Miner want to have them back. Your, your, your brain tells you that it's cell phones and you put them in your pocket <laughs> and then you get them back. Don't do that. If you can collect them in the line, so one of you hold them. And who is collecting them then on your way out? Oh, there, yeah. So you, you hand it out that, but you can already start it so one of you have uh, all of them and put them on top of each other. It will facilitate them. So Hans, could I um, may, maybe ask you if you could download the information to tell me how ODI staff members performed on that particular test? I'd be, uh... No, no. We have high ethical roles. We collect no DNA on them. <laughs> it's a pity. Uh -huh. um, it's tough to thank you sufficiently, Hans. It was a wonderful, a wonderful presentation, and in which we all learned a great new word, factfulness, which will be appearing in ODI papers down the line. There's another new word that I'd ask you to consider, which is the verb rosling, to be roslinged. Um, which I, I would sort of associate with have being confronted with the power of your own prejudices and misconceptions by an incredibly insightful and benign, yet cane-wielding <laughs> professor from Sweden. So, uh, just a thought. There's a problem because rostling in the Swedish language means the last breath before you die. <laughs> Whereas my name is Rosling, which is a small rose. So that mispronunciation in English makes it useless. Please go for factfulness. Go for factfulness. You know, there, there were so many things that came out of the presentation, which I'm not going to attempt to summarise, but I, I was very struck, actually, by some of the information that came out of the data exercise you did right at the beginning of the overestimation of the degree of extreme deprivation yep. that you find. And it, it, it nonetheless does strike me, that, you, you know, that when you went wandering off on left stage on the high-hanging fruit, there's clearly a, a huge challenge around this last 10% yep. in education, the last 10% in vaccine. And the fact that we're seeing progress in many of these areas flatlining now, I think, illustrates how hard the going the next mile in yep. development will be. And I think you know, using all of the tools at our disposal to get a better handle on that is, is absolutely critical. And of course, it brings us into these areas of, you know, how do you deliver a decent quality health system, a decent quality education system in those four 
corners. And actually, this is one of the themes that we're really trying to focus on in ODI, so I'm very glad that you, you, you mm -hmm. highlighted that. Um, I, I also wanted to thank you for boosting, probably by a factor of several hundred percent, the downloads of our Financing for Development <laughs> paper. Financing uh, for the Future. Financing for the Future, I'm sorry. Financing for the Future, I even know the title. <laughs> God, this guy does his homework. I've been, I've been rustling. rustling. <laughs> um, it, it's actually a wonderful paper by Romley Greenhill and uh, Paddy Carter, so I would encourage any of those of you who, who haven't read it to download it and look at it. And it, it addresses many of the issues that Hans was raising here, uh, in particular with the financing, uh, from a financing perspective. Uh, we have a small... Uh, can I have the bag as well? Um, we do have a small presentation. This, uh, as, as Hans said, he gives this lecture to a lot of um, commercial banks. Yeah. And uh, this is a bag full of uh, dollars for you. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's not a bag full of dollars at all. Yeah, um, but uh, we, you, you actually asked us specifically for a particular book which is on child labour during the British Industrial Revolution. Yes, it Revolution. is that one. It is yeah. the very yeah. book. Yes. Thank you. Thank we you very much. Thank you. Which, you uh, see what a fantastic country you can build with such terrible methods. <laughs> it really gives you know food for thought. You yeah. know, what nastiness, you know. I come from one of the twenty two countries in the world that was never occupied by Britain. <laughs> you know, the way you have been behaving to your own children and to the world, you know, it makes you humble to criticize other countries too much when they are in the same period, you know. Mm -hmm. And, and that, I'm very interested on this and how that this could turn around completely, you yeah. know, to, to, to the opposite. Thank you very much. Well, I, I guess also, Hans, this is part of the last 10% challenge, isn't it? Because, yep. you know, it's one of the things that's holding back progress. The, the other non-monetary gift that we have for you is uh, our four of our top uh, infographics, three, sorry, three of our top infographics, which we hope you'll find a suitable place for in your, in your office. Thank you very much. So, thank, you. thank you. And thank you again, Hans, so, so much for thank a you. wonderful... Thank you. thank you very much. Thank you very much. And, um, and, and thanks to all of you for, for coming. And please do link to us on ODI through, through the website and keep an eye on our future events. They're, I can't promise they'll all quite be up to this standard, but they're pretty good. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.